a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. Welcome to another edition of Bearing Arms, Cam and Company. My name is Cam Edwards. I'm glad you're with us today. We're going to be uh, taking a closer look at uh, what is going on with the Senate negotiations on gun control, whether or not uh, some sort of deal can be struck here uh, between the group of, I guess it's what, uh, basically five Republicans, five Democrats who are working to cobble together something that they think can get to 60 votes in the uh, Senate. And there are a couple of measures that don't directly uh, deal with gun control, right? There's talk about uh, bolstering mental health spending for public schools, uh, talk about improving school security. Uh, but then there are also a couple of other measures that do implicate the right to keep and bear arms. There's discussions about expanding background checks in uh, some way, uh, discussion about providing grants to states to implement red flag laws, and sort of percolating around the edges uh, is this idea that I think is still being floated of raising the age to either purchase a semi-automatic long gun from 18 to 21 or raising the age to purchase firearms in general from 18 to 21. You know, under federal law, you currently have to be 21 years of age to purchase a pistol from an FFL. Now, if you depend on state law, you don't have to be 21 to possess a handgun, but you need to be 21 to purchase one at retail. Uh, and despite the fact that Senator John Cornyn said a couple of days ago that uh, no, no, no restrictions on guns, no, not interested in that. Apparently, that is still a part of the uh, ongoing talks. Uh, and, uh, you know, I wrote about this yesterday at BarryingArms.com. I think this is such a red herring. Uh, you know, we've seen a lot of, of folks talk about, well, you know, it seems like it, it's it's young people who are committing these uh, mass shootings, right? There was an 18-year-old in Buffalo, there was an 18-year-old in Uvalde. If we raise the age, then we'll stop those young adults from being able to commit these types of crimes, which I don't think is true, given that we have seen some mass shooters under the age of 21 who have stolen their firearms in order to carry out their attacks. But also, if you look at the FBI's recent report on active shooter incidents in the United States last year, they were actually, they didn't separate, they, they do separate it out by age range, but they don't do specifically like under 18s. So uh, I believe they do under 17s, and then they do, I believe, 18 to 24-year-olds, then 25 to 34-year-olds, 35 to 44, and then, right, so they separate it out that way. What I found was that there are actually more active shooter suspects or individuals who carried out these attacks who are over the age of 40 and were under the age of 25. So the idea, again, that, you know, this is going to be some sort of targeted approach. No, I mean, you're targeting young adults, but you're not likely to ensnare uh, any more of these incredibly rare uh, uh, individuals uh, than you would if you passed a ban on the sale of so-called assault weapons to individuals over the age of 40. Um, I, again, I don't think that this is the way to go. I don't. We've talked about this with Ryan Petty on the program a few days ago. He said he doesn't believe that any of the gun control restrictions that are being debated in Congress are worthy of passing. And I got to tell you, I, I feel the same way. Not because I don't care about violent crime. We talk about violent crime on this program every single day. But just that the approach that Congress is taking right now, I've got to do something about the guns, I think takes us further away 
from these solutions that actually can make a difference, these solutions that don't try to reduce the supply of firearms in a country that protects the right to keep and bear them, a country with 100 million legal gun owners and some 400 million privately owned firearms. I think you need to be focusing on reducing the demand for firearms among those who are most likely to criminally misuse them, as well as doing what you can to enforce the laws that are currently on the books to ensure that there are consequences for committing violent crimes or even threatening violent crimes. But that's just my take. Uh, over at uh, The New Yorker, however, they had a, uh, a rundown of the basic ideas that are being bandied about in the Senate right now uh, and their analysis on, on what this would mean. And I ran across something I thought was really worth highlighting here uh, in their discussion about background checks. And I think it's really important that everybody understand, whether you are a gun owner, a Second Amendment advocate, whether you hate guns, that this doesn't stop with background checks. Even if universal background checks were to be approved by Congress, that's just the first step, according to the gun control activists themselves, as to what really uh, needs to be done <clears throat> to put a regime in place that they say could actually have an impact on violent crime. Yeah, even some gun control activists themselves admit, you know, universal background checks just a first step. So let's let's focus in on this. Uh, again, this is from New York Magazine. They write, it's unclear at this point what form of background checks the Senate is considering. Though the presence of Republican Pat Toomey and Democrat Joe Manchin at the negotiating table suggests that it could bear some resemblance to the 2013 effort from the two senators. <clears throat> that bill, they say, demanded background checks at gun shows and for online sales, but did not require them when family and friends sold or gave one another firearms. The amendment gathered four Republican votes despite Mitch McConnell whipping against it, but it ultimately failed. Expanded background checks have been a goal of reform-minded legislators for many years, and though the new bill will presumably have the support of the Republican senators in the talks, it needs six more votes from a party devoted to the status quo, they write. As the most ambitious measure reportedly considered in the bill, it is also the first on the chopping block. They go on to say, even if the policy makes it to the Senate floor, expanded background checks at the state level don't necessarily equate to lower homicide rates, according to Johns Hopkins University's Daniel Webster. He says, quote, we do see filling that gap does significantly reduce gun trafficking, noting that all background check systems are not created equal. What we find is when you couple comprehensive background checks with a licensing system is where you tend to see beneficial effects. Or in some cases, you see beneficial effects when adding a waiting period to the background check process. The long story short, he says, is that just doing the background check by itself only takes you so far. Now, let's break that down for a minute. So, first of all, uh, the acknowledgement, again, is background checks is a starting point for the gun control lobby. It's not an endpoint, right? That step one is to get, quote unquote, universal background checks in place. Now, Webster's right, by the way, when he says that universal background checks don't do much. This is the dirty little secret. This is something politicians particularly those on Capitol Hill right now, don't really want to talk about. A background check law that's put in place requiring background checks on private person-to-person -person sales is utterly impossible to proactively enforce. It, it can't be done. How on earth is law enforcement supposed to determine what private citizen is getting ready to sell a firearm to a friend, a neighbor, or, yes, even a stranger. You can't. 
at best, at best, this is a statute that could be used after a firearm has been transferred, after that gun has been used in the crime, after that firearm has been discovered and traced back, and after the person who uh, received that firearm says, yeah, Bob sold it to me. And then you can go after Bob and charge him. Well, generally, the state level, we're talking about a misdemeanor offense. Federally, the uh, provisions that they're talking about, they're very, very uh, cagey, by the way, about what the punishment would be. Um, but you could be looking at as much as five years in federal prison, right? This could be a federal felony offense. Again, impossible to enforce proactively. Impossible for it to actually have some sort of preventative impact on violent crime. But according to the gun control advocates, that can be dealt with <laughs> with the addition of just a few more reasonable common sense measures, right? Like a license to own a firearm. And of course, they would like to see a may issue license, right? They would like you to be able to be denied for any reason or no reason whatsoever. Uh, the issuing authority, whoever that might be, county sheriff, local judge, can look at you and say, um, nah. yeah, Cam, you, you're not a prohibited person. You don't have any disqualifications, but uh, I don't know. I just get the feeling as I'm talking to you, you're a bit of a hothead. I just don't think it's appropriate that you own a gun. That can happen. I mean, again, look at the laws that are in place right now in states like Connecticut, North Carolina, uh, Hawaii, with the permit to purchase requirements, where again, you have to go hat in hand to your local law enforcement and say, please, may I may I please have permission to buy a pistol? And they can look at you and say, uh, no, I don't think it's suitable for you to own a pistol. This type of discretion, just so open to abuse, is precisely the system that the gun control activists want to put in place. And even that's not enough, because as Webster said, well, you know, waiting periods would be helpful too, right? So uh, now, after you get your permit to acquire, and maybe you've received your license to possess a firearm in your home, you've gone through multiple background checks, you've been pre-screened, you've been pre-authorized by local law enforcement, right, who's determined that you are suitable, that, that you do have a good enough character to exercise your Second Amendment rights. And now you got to wait three, five, seven, ten, maybe more days in order for you to actually take possession of that firearm. Yeah. I remember, this is <laughs> this would apply to legal gun owners. This would apply to folks who want to remain within the confines of the law. Criminals, those who obtain their firearms illegally, those who steal them, those who get them through straw purchasers, those who even build guns when they're not allowed to possess them, yeah, they aren't going to give a damn about any of these restrictions because they're not going to touch them. Again, it's, a, it's another charge they might face after the fact. But quite frankly, if you are uh, misusing a firearm in the commission of a violent crime, you're probably hoping that you only get charged with a possessory offense, like transferring a firearm without a license or, uh, you know, having a firearm without a license, as opposed to the more serious violent offenses. And sadly, 
All too common. That's exactly what we see. When somebody gets arrested and they're charged with a variety of offenses, including violent and possessory gun offenses, those violent offenses are often plea bargained down. They plead guilty to the possessory charge, get a slap on the wrist, and they're sent on their way. That's how these gun control laws work in practice. Again, all of them, generally speaking, aimed at people who are responsible gun owners, who who want to lawfully exercise their right to keep and bear arms, but are continually told by these gun control advocates that they're the problem, right? And that's why these laws must focus on them, as opposed to actually ensuring that we have a functional criminal justice system that doesn't allow violent criminals to walk away with a slap on the wrist. Which, by the way, we'll uh, get to that. Actually, that's probably a pretty good transition now that I think about it. To our uh, good deed of the day, our armed citizen story, uh, and our recidivist report. Well, I, I actually, we'll move on to that in just a second. I, I would encourage you, uh, if you're watching or listening to this right now, contact your Congress critter, contact your House member, contact your senators. Tell them no. Uh, well, tell them no, but to tell them what you think and what you know about these uh, anti-gun provisions that are being, uh, I think, rammed through for purely political reasons, rather than actually looking at what could make a difference right now. And and frankly, the crises, the multiple crises, crises that we have in our mental health system, in our criminal justice system, even if, unlike me. You like the idea of more gun control laws. The idea of putting more gun laws in place on a system that is so rotting and damaged. Again, I I have constitutional concerns. I have practical concerns with every one of these proposals under consideration. But even setting aside my constitutional concerns, even if I wasn't a Second Amendment advocate and a Second Amendment activist, when you look at the state of our criminal justice system, the idea that putting more laws on the books is going to do a damn thing to help, this doesn't make any sense to me. Not when you have headlines like this one out there. From California, by the way, home to some of the most restrictive gun laws in the nation. Also home, according to the FBI, to more active shooter incidents last year than any other state in the union. San Mateo man sentenced for shooting is the headline. A San Mateo man accused of shooting his brother in the head over an argument has been given probation and credit for about a year of prison time, according to the San Mateo County DA's office. Carlos Joel Colon, 32 years of age, accused of shooting his brother in their home on Christmas Eve in 2021 because the two got into an argument over Colon's methamphetamine use, according to the DA's office. I know, the story just gets worse the more you read. Cologne allegedly pulled a handgun out in anger and shot his brother once, causing a four-inch-long, half-inch-wide laceration to his forehead. He's lucky he didn't kill his brother. Cologne then fled with his brother eventually admitting to police that Cologne had shot him. Cologne was arrested after going back to the residence the next day. Police found blood on his shoes and shirt. The brother survived. On June 6th, Cologne pleaded no contest to discharging a firearm. Not attempted murder, right? Not aggravated assault with a firearm. Just discharging a firearm. And he received credit for just under a year in prison, and got over a year of supervised probation. (laughs) And according to the powers that be in California, the system works, right? This is an example of the system working. Somebody who nearly killed his brother 
pleading down to what amounts to a nonviolent offense, discharging a firearm, gets basically time served for the year that he spent in jail awaiting the opportunity to plead guilty. So he's already out. And uh, he gets to spend, what, a year on, quote-unquote, supervised probation, which honestly doesn't have a lot of supervision to it at all, given the uh, uh, overworked uh, probation and parole officers in the state of California. But yeah. Meanwhile, by the way, California lawmakers tomorrow, Wednesday, set to hold a hearing to uh, probably enact another half dozen or so gun control laws. Well, this is the current state of their criminal justice system. And again, <laughs> they wonder why even Californians are getting fed up with these soft on crime policies. We'll see uh, if that has any impact in today's primaries in uh, California, including the uh, recall campaign for uh, Chesa Budin, San Francisco's district attorney. Uh, meanwhile, today's armed citizen story from Jacksonville, Florida, one of... Many defensive gun uses around the country in which the trigger wasn't pulled, but the presence of the firearm enough to stop a crime from escalating any further. A son in Jacksonville who ended up holding a burglar at bay after the man broke into his mother's house. Uh, Teresa Cruz lives in Jacksonville, and uh, she said she recently woke up to a man inside her home. She says she was sleeping, woke up to the sound of dogs barking. And uh, someone, quote, banging on my door, telling me to open the door. She said she opened the door. Uh, she stepped into the hall. She said there was a young man standing in the hallway with a knife in his hand. Police say the uh, man, 28-year-old Devin Fennell. And they say that they believe he broke into her home through the back door. Cruz said, I started basically yelling at him to get out of my house. She said the screaming alerted her son, who lives next door. She said, my son came out about that time, and he did have his weapon. Her son ended up holding the man until uh, officers with the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office arrived. Cruz, by the way, says this is the first time that anything like this has ever happened to her. And uh, as you can imagine, it's had an impact. She says, I don't sleep at night now because I'm nervous. I've never had that feeling in my entire life. Fidel's been charged with burglary. Her son not facing any charges. He was acting in defense of his mom. And again, like the vast majority of defensive gun uses in this country, he did not have to pull the trigger. Fennell apparently decided it would be better off to just sit and wait for the police to arrive than to uh, take his chances either attacking uh, that armed citizen or uh, trying to uh, flee and get away. Now, today's good deed of the day from the Washington, D.C. area. Over the weekend where uh, good Samaritans were in the right place at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing to save a motorist who had driven into a canal uh, in uh, the District of Columbia. It was actually the crew at uh, Float DC who saw what happened. Uh, Lavert Phillips, who's the owner of Float DC, says it's always good to help save a life. I mean, we're not here to be superheroes or anything. He said that uh, he and uh, co-workers were hanging out on the dock Friday night at the D.C. Wharf when they heard something that sounded like an explosion uh, right around midnight. He said, I happened to look up and I saw this big splash after I heard the bang and I saw headlights in the water. So there's this van that had, you know, gone into the canal. Uh, Phillips was able to uh, get the attention of uh, his uh, crew members. And uh, they sprang into action, uh, both Phillips and a man named Colin Jacobs. 
uh, decided to uh, uh, try to go and rescue the man. Jacob said, my fear is that even if he made it to the wall, he wouldn't have enough energy and strength to pull him out. So the pair did help pull the man out of the water and onto a boat before rescue crews could even get there. The uh, driver, they say, was disoriented and exhausted, but was okay. Colin Jacobs says, you know, you grab him, make sure catch his breath first. And then we both gave him a hand. We pulled him up on the boat, make sure he's all safe. Uh, within seconds after pulling him to safety, the man's minivan vanished under the uh, water. Not long afterwards, emergency crews responded and eventually were able to haul the van up and uh, onto shore. But uh, again, Philip says, by the time we got to him, the car was gone. Uh, <laughs> when asked if he had any advice or any other drivers, Philip said, uh, be careful. That's pretty much it. Don't drive in the water because cars don't do a good job floating. Boats do, but cars don't. Yeah, pretty good advice. Hopefully not necessary, but uh, now you know. Anyway, in the right place, at the right time, willing and able to do the right thing. Uh, Laverne Phillips and uh, Colin Jacobs with Float DC. We thank you for your very good deed. That is all the time we've got for you on this edition of Bearing Arms Cam and Company. I want to thank you for being a part of the program as always. I am looking forward to being back with you tomorrow. Also, don't forget for our VIP Gold subscribers, we have our weekly live chat with Hot Airs Ed Morrissey coming up at 1.30 Eastern. If you would like to become a VIP Gold subscriber, you can do so. Just go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. You can use a, pro, a promo code GUNRIGHTS to get a significant savings on your VIP membership. I believe that might even apply for your VIP Gold membership as well. But the VIP Gold membership, well worth it. Not only do you get all of the VIP uh, access from Bearing Arms, but across the entire family of Town Hall Media websites from uh, Twitchy, Hot Air, obviously Town Hall, Red State, and more. Again, you can find out more. Just go to bearingarms.com slash subscribe. We really do appreciate your support. It means a lot to us. Until we talk again, be well. Be safe and be free.